0: Guys, I am so excited for today's episode. It's a bit of a longer one, but for such good reason. As many of you know, Jess's brand new book, A Breaking Free from Body Shame, releases on June 22nd. We cannot Wait. And in this episode, we're giving you chapter three, renaming what the world has labeled less than. We pray that this message and this book encourages and equips you today. Your body is good. Listen in. Chapter three, renaming what the world has labeled less than. Confession I own too many domains, as in website domain names. A few years ago, I figured out if I had a good idea for a business, a book, or a ministry, I should absolutely buy the domain or at least see if it's available before I take a step further. The problem is sometimes I forget about the idea and then I end up paying $11.99 a year to hold the domain name. For example, one time I bought the website iworkwithmodels.com because a bunch of my coworkers came into work wearing really cute outfits. I thought maybe I'd start a fashion blog where I showcase their cute styles. I still own the website, but have not gotten around to doing anything with it. Part of my work with Go and Tell Gals, the organization I run, is helping women step into their God-given call to coach others. A few nights ago, I was working with a group of said coaches, and I had a website idea, coachesareworthit.com. We would start a whole marketing campaign around why it's so great to work with a coach. I went to buy it and discovered it was already taken. Who else would buy CoachesAreWorthIt.com? I went to another website where I could investigate the ownership of said domain and found something hilarious. I am the owner. I'd already bought it. I love naming things. I love picking names for websites, for businesses, for babies. If you need a kid or a book named, I'm your girl." Let's get a whiteboard and a Bible and a thesaurus and go to town. For this reason, my children love to hear the stories of how they were named. Elias was a name gifted to us by a family we admired. They had two grown daughters. We were having our first son, and they had always wished they could use the name Elias. Benjamin, our third child and second son, was named Benjamin after we heard one of our favorite preachers explain why he'd named his son Benjamin. It means son of my right hand, and we never wanted Benjamin to feel second or third, but rather near and close and important to us. Cannon, our baby, who is now seven, was perhaps the easiest to name of all our children. I had a difficult pregnancy involving complications and bed rest. One time, in the middle of a really stressful ultrasound, I just said the name Cannon Connolly aloud. It just came, and it was the rock we needed to stand on a hope to see him face to face. Gloriana Eloise is our second born child and first daughter. Her name tells a story of heartache and hope. She was originally going to be Talitha Catherine Connolly, Taylee Kate or Talitha Kate. My husband and I bickered over the pronunciation of Talitha, but it's an Aramaic word used in Mark 5 when Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. He says, Talitha kum, which means little girl get up. I've loved this account from Mark ever since I was a new follower of Jesus, and I'd always planned to name a daughter Talitha. And then came her 20-week ultrasound. I knew in my gut she was a girl, but the wand and the gel and the screen confirmed it. The ultrasound technician measured and measured and measured with her head cocked slightly to the left, as if something wasn't quite correct— We were told our baby looked a little small, but not to worry. They'd run a few extra tests and get back to us. Lori's story is long and beautiful and redemptive, and I'd love to tell you the whole thing another time, but to sum it up, a week later, we were faced with the potential of losing our beautiful baby girl for the first of many times. My husband, Nick, and I prayed, our family prayed, the community rallied around us and prayed, and in the midst of that time, I knew I couldn't name her Talitha. Maybe I didn't have enough faith. I'm not sure. But I knew I couldn't name her after a story where Jesus raised a little girl from the dead if that wasn't going to be her story. We decided to call her Gloriana, meaning glory born because surely she would be one way or another. A few weeks later, more tests were run, and in one shocking phone call, we were told we had a healthy baby. It was almost more jarring to drop our concern for her than it was to pick it up in the first place, but we moved forward in gratitude. The name, Gloriana, stayed. I'm also a renamer, and I have no shame about that. I've personally gone from Jessica to Jesse to Jesse to Jess over the span of 36 years, my name changing with age and life season, always becoming a little more aware of who God has made me to be, always trying to step into that with more intention. I often say that there are people who call me Jesse because it's familiar and familial. This means that they knew me before we started churches or wrote books— But there are also people who call me Jesse, and it feels heavy, like they're suggesting they know who I really am because they know who I used to be. It feels as if they're calling me Jesse because they don't want me to grow. We changed our old business's name twice, once because we wanted to and once because we had to. We changed the name of our church from Gospel Community to Bright City. We felt like Gospel Community was who we were, and Bright City was who God was asking us to be. In the biblical narrative, renaming was far more common than it is now, and I appreciate that. Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah, agreeing with their new names that they would no longer be barren but the mother and father of generations. Jacob became Israel, and in so doing, he went from identifying as a trickster to someone who honestly wrestles with and acknowledges the Lord's power in his life. Simon was renamed Peter, which means rock, by Jesus, a name that carried weight and position in the new church of early believers, especially poignant to remember the name was given to him even though Jesus knew Peter would betray him. He told Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18, giving him a new position, a new responsibility. Saul became Paul, marking a life transition that saw him shift from a persecutor of Christians to the man who would write the book of the New Testament. Of course, not all names are created equal. These are all examples of names that were bestowed on the recipient with great love, names that were carefully considered and selected to speak significance over a person's life. Lesser names are spoken over us all the time with no such intention, labels, accusations, even nicknames. While some names are designed to lift us up, others are designed to drag us down. And I want you to hear me on this. The truth is we get to choose which names we agree with. There is a wildly beautiful power in giving a soul the option to agree or disagree with the label, description, projection, or perception of worth a name gives them. I'm not advocating that we all run to the social security office and give ourselves new legal names, but we've been given the opportunity to pause and ask, do I consent to the meaning of my name? Do I agree with the weight of the nicknames I've had attributed to me or that I've accepted from others? Am I actively participating in naming things, other people, myself, in a life-giving way? And of course, we should all ask, what name have we given our bodies? Do you call your body great, weird, awkward, have you named yourself as strong or weak, unique or basic? In the past, have you ascribed to yourself the label of pale, short, curvy, messy? These are more than just labels or descriptions, especially when we hold on to them and live under them as if they're truth. We treat these words as if they're no big deal, but we know that names are absolutely important. So let's treat them as such. The name that hurt. If we were together right now, my body might get unusually still. And I'd try to lock eyes with you without making it weird. If I could tell you're a toucher, I might grab your hands. If close contact is too much for you, I may move further away. What I'm saying is this. I'd do anything in my physical power to make sure we both seized the next few moments for all they're worth. The misnaming that has occurred in our lives has been a large part of our wounding, and I believe in Jesus' name, going back to the first name we were given can be healing. The names that we and others have given our bodies has been the foundational trauma that many of us are still trying to overcome. The misnaming has been the weapon that brings continual injury to our most vulnerable identity. The misnaming has come from people we love, people we hate, people we know, and people we don't. The misnaming has come from our own lips and from the megaphone of a culture that cares very little for our souls and very much about our compliance. The misnaming of our bodies has left every single one of us feeling flawed, even when our minds know a truth that says otherwise. My gut tells me that the memories of our misnaming are close for us, even if we haven't thought about them in years. My spirit tells me that we may have forgotten the words or the people who delivered them, but the wounds and fears have stayed with us all the same— And my mind knows that even the names we tried not to agree with, even the ones we tried to cast off, made an impact on us and left us limping to some degree. I wish we didn't have to give the misnaming we've all experienced even one second of airtime. I wish we could shake our heads and shake off the devastation and injury those past moments incurred, but an assailant so damaging cannot be ignored, and the injuries absolutely won't heal with time if we don't address them head on. We are a wounded people, and if it's healing we want, it's our pain we must pay attention to, at least long enough to call it what it is and ask for help from the right place. The amazing news is, is that giving attention to misnaming doesn't inherently give it more power if we know in the end we have access to the power of renaming. My heart aches as a mother, a daughter, and a friend to say the following words. Our negative naming most likely started at home. Someone you loved and trusted and needed named your body or theirs in a way that forever framed your worth. Your mother told you she didn't love her body, and that was alarming to you. Your father said you were too heavy for a piggyback ride. The elders in your family openly critiqued or praised your body in a way that made you feel wildly uncomfortable. Your brother or sister casually mentioned some flaw of yours, and you'll never forget it. These were not necessarily bad people. In most cases, it was likely our deep love— and trust of them that caused us such confusion and pain when they said these things. It breaks me to say that for many of us, the pain and the words were much more overt and oppressive than those I've just described. And I am so sorry for any misnaming that happened to you at home. I think of the first misnaming, the one that most likely happened at home for many of us, like the first Bite of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman, Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, Don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you'll die. The serpent told the woman, You won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband, and he ate. Immediately, the two of them did see what's really going on, saw themselves naked, they sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. Genesis 3, 1-7, through 7, the message version. Did you catch that? The serpent's misnaming was incredibly sneaky because it was so subtle. He whispered into Eve's ear, saying, If you do this one thing, then you'll be like God. And in so doing, he named her as Lacking. Eve, you're not enough as you are. You're not like God. Talk about a masterful lie. The first few chapters of Genesis proclaim the glory of man and woman as made in the very image of God. What God proclaimed as very good, the serpent declared not enough. We can see what came next, shame. The first time Eve was misnamed was the first time she was introduced to shame. That's what shame does, It whispers to us that we lack, and suddenly we are aware of how less than we are in the eyes of others. We didn't know, and then suddenly we did. Just as Eve was unaware of her nakedness and suddenly ashamed of her natural state, when we believe a misnaming spoken over us, we are thrust into a whole new reality that does not agree with the kingdom truth about our bodies. Like Eve, the knowing that came from the misnaming didn't help us. It harmed us. And we couldn't unhear or unsee a world. Once we were exposed, shame and striving were suddenly that much closer to our skins and our souls. For many of us, this kind of naming also occurred at school, perhaps at recess or in the cafeteria, These were the first moments we heard another human using piercing words to name our bodies. For me, it was as simple as the other girls starting a gymnastics club on the playground. They told me I couldn't be in it because I was too heavy to lift myself over the bar. They were right. And suddenly, I felt so wrong. I started a running club with a few boys instead, and I wonder now how long I've been subconsciously trying to outrun that moment. The initial misnaming may have happened for you via TV, and it may have occurred later when you assumed you'd go through life unscathed. It may not have impacted you until marriage or after your first child was born. It may have been a coach, a dance instructor, a youth pastor, a boyfriend. It may have been someone you never personally knew. I have a distinct memory of passing a boy in the hallway in high school. I have no recollection of his face or identity, and hearing him mention with disdain the arms of another girl I knew, then instinctively assessing that mine were bigger than hers. It was a misnaming by a faceless human who held no density in my destiny that I have not forgotten for over 18 years. The misnaming we experienced told us we were too big or too small. The misnaming told us to be wary of becoming certain things, The misnaming told us we were abnormal or ordinary. The misnaming happened in the natural, a transaction of irreverent and obscene words in which we exchanged our ability to hear with our ability to believe we were made good in a heaping moment that we could not have possibly consented to. The misnaming is worth mourning. The misnaming is worthy of our attention. It cannot be reversed, but it can become a moment reclaimed. With a wild mix of mercy, grace, and healing that we absolutely have access to, we can be women who take off the brokenness of the names we've been called and pick up the beauty of the true names we've been given by God. A Moment of Mercy Maybe you can recall the first time words were used to describe your body or describe another person's body. Maybe you can remember the first moment wherein you felt the covering of security become stripped away and the shame, disappointment, or fear rushed in to envelop you. If you do, or if another poignant memory comes to mind, can I invite you to spend just a few moments there with me? I don't want to linger for the sake of morbid introspection, but rather because 2 Corinthians 12 9 says that His power is made perfect in our weaknesses, and I don't want to miss an ounce of the power we have access to in this area of our lives. Another reason I want to entreat you to keep going with me, even back to the place where the hurt or confusion may have begun, is because our hero is waiting there for us. In the movies, he rushes in when the peril is at its peak, when the villain's monologue is at its zenith and the vulnerable victim is in the most need. What's different for us is that our hero was always ready and already walking with us. He didn't need to hurry or hide until the last minute. I know that Jesus Christ probably did not appear to you in the flesh the first time someone came for your body in a negative way. If he did, I want to hear that story, and you'd better believe I'll trust you. But I do believe that our hero, our father, the creator of the universe, was not turning a blind eye at the origin of our unrest as it pertains to how we were made. I believe we can trust his promises to us. Let's look at some of the good promises our father makes. God doesn't miss a thing. He's alert to good and evil alike. Proverbs 15.3, The Message Version The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Psalm 121.8 Don't be afraid, I've redeemed you. I've called your name, you're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end because I am God, your personal God, the holy of Israel, your savior. Isaiah 43, two through three, the message version. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 ESV He was there. What's more, I believe he was grieved. The child he loved and created with intention, holiness, beauty, and care was about to be misnamed by another human who could never grasp the pain and confusion they were ushering in. I believe he was there. I believe he was full of love, compassion, mercy, and deep grief for you. I have a friend who experienced incredible trauma when one of her children almost died. Later, she went to a prayer ministry where the woman praying with her asked her to replay the event, picturing where Jesus was throughout every moment of the trauma based on what she knew of His character. When she replayed the event in her mind, she saw Him holding her, holding her child, His face full of mercy and compassion and care. He was concerned but not flustered. He was moved to mercy. Since my friend told me about her experience, I've tried to do the same thing with the tense or terrifying moments in my life, and I'm inviting you into that practice. Knowing our God is full of justice and truth, knowing He crafted your body in your mother's womb, knowing He loves you and He'd leave His entire flock just to come and get you, where do you suppose Jesus was at the moment of your misnaming? How did his face look? Where were his arms? Do you think that maybe in his compassionate, all-knowing power, there's a possibility he thought about and prayed for this moment in the midst of that one, eagerly anticipating the restoration and redemption you'd experience? I'm asking you a set of incredibly intentional questions about your soul. Do you believe God loves you and cares for you? Do you believe he has mercy and compassion for you in your weakest moments? Do you think he grieves the way your body has been named by you and others? I do, I do, and I do. The God who is full of mercy toward you was absolutely there when you were misnamed. He was broken over the burden being placed on you and he was already setting a plan in motion so that this wound would be healed and could be used in your life for the good of others and for his glory. I am not thankful for the moments when my body was named with unholy words and an iniquitous identity was attached to me based on how I looked or did not look. I am not thankful for those moments but I am wildly thankful that God was there holding me in compassion, and I'm thankful he's here now, bringing restoration and redemption when I need it most. This right now is another moment of mercy, and his compassion and care are ours to receive if we want them. The enemy is the enemy. As we're sitting in the tension of that first naming or any subsequent one that comes to mind, let's think about the villain, the enemy, in that moment. Who said the hurtful thing, whether directed at you or themselves or someone else? If you knew them, how did it impact the way you loved them and felt loved by them from then on? Did it seem like maybe it ruined your relationship? Was distrust brought into the mix? Were you shocked to hear that person demean another person or maybe even themselves? Now I'm wondering if you've ever been complicit in any naming either your body or someone else's, either in front of them or behind their backs? Have you ever used your words to speak death, defeat, and defection into the flesh God formed with intention and care? My guess is yes. My sad, convicted answer for myself is also yes. So what do we do when we're all complicit in negative naming? When we've all been the bad guy at some point, how do we move forward in a way that is kingdom-minded but also honors our hurt and makes us accountable for the hurt we've caused? I don't believe we should sweep all occasions of naming under the rug and give those who have injured us blanket absolution. I am, however, advocating that we remember that the enemy of our souls is the true enemy in these situations. Remembering this helps us fight the right assailant, forgive ourselves for the negative namings of the past, and access healing in a more complete way. Here's what Scripture reminds us about the actual enemy and how Jesus differs from him. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10.10 When I remember that I've been a part of the horrible phenomenon of naming our bodies outside of the good boundaries God created and sustained us in, it's easier for me to have compassion on those who have done the same to me or around me. When I remember that the enemy of my soul is the author of lies— the one who wants us to run from the truth of God, it's easier for me to experience the mercy of Christ and want the same for others. When I remember that every soul who has made the horrific mistake of naming a body in a negative way was subject to this fallen world and the propaganda it promotes in regard to creation, it's easier for me to forgive. It's easier for me to remember that Satan is the enemy. I have forgiven some people who use their words to name my body, but will never speak to them again. The forgiveness is because of Jesus, but it is for me, so I don't grow bitter, so I allow the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ to have its way in my life. But I don't have to continue to be in a relationship with those people in order for forgiveness to be complete. That wouldn't be healthy or lead to my wholeness. I have forgiven and am still in relationships with other people who have used their words to name my body or theirs in a heartbreaking way. I have learned how to use my words to break ties with the negativity most of them still speak even as they're saying it. I have forgiven them in the past, have compassion for them in the present, yet refuse to allow their words to rest on my soul, spirit, or body. We'll talk more about what that looks like in practice later on. Allowing the enemy to be my enemy instead of the human who has misnamed me does not negate my pain. But allowing the enemy to be the enemy does not give unsafe words from other people a free pass to wreak havoc in my life. Allowing the enemy to be my enemy does not mean I will never tell people when and how they've hurt me so we can both hopefully grow. Remembering the enemy is the enemy does help me humbly remember my own need for the gospel while providing the proper direction for my anger. I am angry. And broken and busted over the misnaming of bodies that has occurred and is occurring in our culture. I am angry and broken and busted over the number of women and men who have experienced years of pain or bondage from the weight of words spoken over them. But my active anger is directed at the enemy of our souls because I believe he is the author of lies and thus the origin of the conflict. My anger is also directed at him because I've been told how to fight him and combat his advances without holding back. In fact, I've been commanded and equipped to demolish strongholds he wants to introduce into my life, and so have you. Maybe the thing that keeps me the most angry about the enemy and the misnaming he attempts in our lives is that it's an attempt to usurp our God-given family heritage— Our father is a namer at the core of his character, and we've been given the advantageous authority to name people and things in a life giving way by our adoption into his family. This capacity for naming things good is a kingdom given gift that is our legacy, and we've got to take it back from the petty thief who thinks he is running the show. A namer and a giver. Let's move on from the enemy and pay attention to the Father and what He was up to in the incredible moments of creation. Join me in Genesis. So God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis one twenty seven through 31. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'd be so grateful if we could see a replay of creation in heaven. Wouldn't that be amazing? Imagine one day on the new earth, a smiling Jesus passes out tickets to some Grand Canyon sized amphitheater. I can't wait. We've got a 4D theater at the aquarium here in Charleston, and my kids and I love to go. It's four-dimensional because it's actually a 3D movie with smells and light movement. Sometimes, if it's a movie about whales or something, they'll spray you with water at just the right moment. It sounds nuts, but it's awesome. I imagine the eternal amphitheater would be even crazier than that. Maybe we'd be suddenly walking in the garden, noticing the soil teeming or the waters still brewing from being parted. I'll tell you what I'd pay attention to, the face of the Father when he created them. Scripture tells us that the triune God was on hand at creation, and he said, Let us make mankind in our image. Genesis 1.26 Was the Spirit sending color, bursting all around like kinetic fireworks? Was Jesus kneeling nearby? I imagine them all smiling, maybe something more than a smile, but I don't have to imagine pleasure, joy, and even divine delight in the work of His hand. He made light with his word and called it good. He made darkness and called it good. He made land and water, plants, the sun and moon, and then animals, and he called it all good. God, our Father wasn't surprised at his own craftsmanship or capability. There wasn't a chance it was going to be bad. And yet, each and every time, he used the same breath he used to create to then confess and confirm the goodness of what he'd made. But then he made people, and something shifted. The Greek word for very in Genesis one thirty one is potentially my favorite word in the entire Greek language. It's the same word that means very when God tells Joshua to be very courageous in Joshua 1.7. The word is miod, and it means muchness. Muchness good. He stood back, saw what he had made, and said, This is muchness good. He made you with his word, declared his creation good with the same, and he keeps going with us and the words he keeps speaking affirmation and life and worth into us and over us through the power of his word. It's like he can't get enough of us, of talking to us. He called us good with his word. He gives us his word when we don't know what to say, Romans 8, 26. He accomplishes what he wants in our lives through his word, Isaiah 55, 11. He tells us what's next with his word, John 16, 13. He lets us in on secrets with his word, Jeremiah 33, 3. He's going to end the fight forever with his word, Revelation 12, 10. Our life with God is crafted with the words. He continually speaks to us, over us. And through us, it was started with words and it's sustained by his word. He speaks and the earth is held. He speaks and grace goes forth. He speaks and creation comes to life. He speaks and value is ascribed. He's a talker, but not in such a way that his words lose value with increased volume. Every word of his is perfect, measured, true, just, right, real, and incredibly significant. You can trust his voice more than any other. And he called you good. He called you muchness good. He was the one who first named you. He grieved when the world called or calls you otherwise. And it's his word that will put us back together and send us out in our healing. Naming is our God's right as creator Naming is our God's game as Redeemer. Naming is how He denotes worth, direction, and value. Naming is how He reminds us of His promises and practices. The question we must ask ourselves is this. Whose voice will we long for and listen to? Whose label will we accept and live into? Which naming will we allow to define us? What's in a name? And which ones will we choose to respond to? Which will we choose to reject? Let's not answer this question too quickly. The easy response would be, God's, of course. We could then move on as if it's that simple, as if it solves everything. Rather, I believe it's a weighty question that's worthy of our time throughout this book. We're going to look at a handful of labels that have been assigned to our bodies, and I'm going to ask us to genuinely consider, do we want to accept what culture has ascribed or work against the status quo to agree with God's word and what he's spoken? Each moment is going to take careful consideration and examination of our hearts, but our healing and the hope of living free is up for grabs. I believe it will be absolutely worth our while to consider what he said as opposed to what we've been misnamed. When you consent to a name, you consent to being known by the namer. When we consent to the name God has given us, it's even more powerful because we're acknowledging that we also belong to Him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Genesis 2. To 19 through 20. The very first job man was given was naming, proof that our Father was taking this whole made-in-our image business very seriously. What he does, we are made able to do. What's more, what he does, we are invited and commanded to do. Think it was just in the garden? No, let's pop over to Proverbs. From the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled with the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Verses 18, 20 through 21. What if part of the healing that is ours for the taking is found in the going and the naming? What if our participation in turning the tide of our culture is where we'll find our ultimate freedom? What if using our words to build a world where other women believe God's truth about their bodies is what will actually help us believe it ourselves? What if naming is also our responsibility, but we're shirking it because we haven't realized what's at stake? What if we have the answer to what ails a generation tucked in our hearts, our phones, our pockets, our purses, by way of our Bibles? What if the truth and word of God given to us as ambassadors is the healing balm creation is crying out for? What if we are the namers, set free to speak life, to bring this message to the people who need it most? Your body is good. Words from our friends. Tiffany. Growing up, I always shared my name with at least one other classmate. This was true up until I entered optometry school at 23. Because I have always shared my name when naming my kids, I, like Jess, have been very intentional about choosing their names. I look for names that don't land on the popular baby name list. I search for names with depth and rich meaning, and I often pray for them to grow in character based on those meanings. We were made by a God who not only created us in His image, but called His creation very good. Just as I want my children to remember who they are based on the names I have given them, God wants us to remember who He says we are, even when it comes to this earthly tent. His words, very good. We're not isolated to our social, emotional aspects of being, but applicable to our whole person's. We cannot allow the enemy to convince us that we are Tiffany with the big legs and bum, as I was referred to growing up. And we also cannot be participants in identifying people as anything other than who God says they are. God gave man the authority to name things, and our words carry weight. I want to choose words that lighten rather than add to what is an already heavy burden for many. RWP. For as long as I can remember, the adults in my life talked about their weight and need to be on a diet. Whether words about dieting were spoken directly to me or just in my presence, it definitely shaped my thinking. Skinny was another word for healthy. Not long after my third child was born, I'd been talking a lot about diet food and wanting to lose that baby weight. At one point, my oldest, who was four at the time, just started crying and said, Mommy, I don't want you to die. I quickly realized that to his little ears, diet and die sound an awful lot alike. It was a wake-up call that he was hearing the same things I remembered hearing. But it only hit me a few years later, once I was in my mid-30s, that dieting wasn't the default space I wanted to live in for the rest of my life. I could change the narrative. I could change the way I had used healthy and skinny interchangeably. I can name things as I see them now, not the way I saw them as a confused child. I can be a name giver who is grounded in his truth. Kim, I am muchness good. I didn't realize I needed to hear that. I am muchness good. I have broken ties with names I have been called in my lifetime, but I can't recall a specific name someone else has called me that relates to my body. The one thing I do know is that I have called myself plenty of names. And even if I haven't called other people names out loud, I can admit that I have done it in my mind. I have also been complicit in conversations with other women in name calling in relation to the body. I want to be a change agent to be part of the good naming of a generation desperate for healing. I want to speak life and release freedom to the captives. I want to be known for that. That was chapter three of Breaking Free from Body Shame by Jess Connolly. If you enjoyed this chapter, you can pre-order the book, the physical copy or the audiobook, and grab a whole bunch of other pre-order bonuses. You can find all the details at JessConnelly.com. We've also linked that in the show notes. We are so grateful for you, friends. Have a great week.